0: With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time-consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage oneofus.net and sign up for a subscription at $2, $5, $10, or $25 and get a ton of bonus content. One of Us needs and appreciates all your support. This episode of Digital Noise is brought to you by Film Movement Plus. The streaming service Film Movement Plus opens up a world of award-winning entertainment, including some of the best films from around the globe. Among the hundreds of titles waiting for you to discover are some of the best films from 2020, including The Wild Goose Lake, Zombie Child, and more. Available on Roku, Apple TV, and Amazon Fire, as well as streaming online and on mobile, Film Movement Plus is priced at $5.99 a month. But, as a listener of Digital Noise, Film Movement Plus will give you a 30-day free trial, plus the next three months at 50% off when you use the promo code NOISE. Sign up today at filmmovementplus.com. This digital noise episode also has a video version for subscribers at the brown coat level or above. Become a subscriber and get the extended video version. What's up you say? Another digital noise this soon after the last one. Oh my god, aren't you lucky? We have so many titles. To... We got kind of backed up here with titles and there's a lot of shit that got in the way. South by Southwest, Icepocalypse uh, in Texas. Th- things got kind of thrown out of whack. But we're here. We've got them watched. I'm with my, my brother in arms, John Golson here to review some Blu-rays and DVDs. John, Hi. how are you doing? How are you holding up? I'm doing fine. It's been You're- a long time.
1: It has. You're fully bearded now. It's been so long. It has been so long that I'm, (laughs) yes, I'm fully bearded. I've been drawing on a uh, volleyball, um, (laughs) eating nothing but crabs, little bits of grass. That
0: doesn't sound all bad. I mean, I've been eating nothing but cheese because everybody sent me cheese for my birthday. I I shouldn't have been so loud this year about how much I like cheese. Oh, I was
1: like, why did you get cheese for your birthday? Or why did you get so much cheese for your birthday?
0: Just different people thought it was a cool present for me at the same time. And so we ended up with a a lot of cheese. And that's not, I'm not complaining. I I really love cheese. I just, I think I broke the toilet seat sitting on it today. So maybe that's a signal from God. Yeah. (laughs) You don't think you're that big until the toilet seat breaks, and then you're like, ah, oh, shit, time to start walking every night again, I guess. Anyway, we're not here to talk about my uh, the difference between my personal vision of what I look like and the truth. We're here to talk about Blu-rays and DVDs, and we're going to get it started with the Blu-ray release Of Harley Quinn, the animated series, bringing both the first and second seasons onto Blu-ray for the first time. This is also, I believe, the first release altogether for the second season. They previously put out a DVD release of just the first season. And I gotta say, I really didn't expect that this cartoon was going to be as strong as it was. I was a little bit cynical about it, in fact, because I don't mind Harley Quinn as a character. I even kind of like her in the movies. You know, I'm not 100 percent on it. I like her from Batman in the animated series, but even then, I was not one of those people who kind of got all Harleyed out. I I got kind of Harleyed out in the sense that she became one of the most overplayed characters in the DC canon in the comics. That's for sure. So I'm like, okay, well, I guess, sure. And not only that, a lot of people were like, really, Kaylee Koowoco from Big Bang Theory is voicing Harley Quinn? I don't know. But it wasn't but a few episodes into this that I got to say I was really completely sold. And that's after an initial, oh, wait, it's an R-rated for adults-only Harley Quinn. So is it going to be too, like, dumb sexy? Is it going to be, like, ridiculous lordy? And what they ended up with was a show that more than anything kind of reminded me of something like the Venture Brothers, actually. Where, yeah, it's self-referential and it's aware of media and it's sort of parodying all the source material, all the drama. It's taking lots of D-list characters to team her up with in here, outside of Lake Bell as Poison Ivy, who's her best friend slash love interest. Later on, you have Doctor Psycho, voiced by Tony Hale, uh, Doctor Trap, uh, vo- uh, who, well Alan Tudyk voices Clayface. The Joker, Calendar Man, Dr. Trap, and Condiment King. <laughs> Talk about your, uh, we're getting into D-list here. Ron Funches, bringing it out as King Shark, where now I'm cynical I'm going to be able to accept somebody else voicing him in the new Suicide Squad movie, because Funches is like, I think, the secret like backbone comedy hit of this show. And J.B. Smoove as uh, Frank the Plant. Oh, and uh, Jason Alexander as Cy Borgman. But a, uh, a team of miscreants, Fine Harley Quinn, who in our first season we see is still kind of pining over the Joker. She's mad at him, but part of her still wants to get back with him, and it's kind of about like recovering from an abusive relationship, while also being completely goofy and wacky. The second season is really just ends from a cliffhanger on the first season where Gotham has been. I would, it's kind of like the Dark Knight Rises, right? It's been cut off from everything else, and and there's, like, the the main bad guy, Batman villains have each taken over a part of the city, and it's sort of Harley Quinn working her way through that scenario, and also working through her slowly realizing she has feelings for Poison Ivy. But I was surprised when you first told me you started watching it, she were like, eh. And then you went back and watched more of it, and you were like,
1: eh. There's something about, like, mature material video games are really bad about this a lot where they they're real clumsy with the f word or profanity in general as like Mm. a flex like when games first started using profanity and people they would like drop f bombs and sentences in weird places where you were like that's like i i i cuss (laughs) maybe there's a fine art to cussing um but there was some is that what I sound like when I say fuck? Yeah, but there was something like, about dude. it where I was like the first episode I was like, "Oh yeah, I get it. You're a D- you're DC mainstream characters and you can say the F-word." Woo. Like <laughs> and then I got into the second episode and you can feel it get a rhythm. Like you can kind of feel it start to settle in and and it's not that they don't know what they want it to be right out of the gate. It's just one of those things where it's like things start becoming more and more polished. Um, yeah, it was uh, it was better. And then I wanted to watch it all. So I had, I had this, you know, you'd given it to me and I had this and I had watched the first one and then kind of put it off and then uh, watched the second one and liked it more and then ended up after the second one kind of getting hooked. And working through a few more of them and actually didn't get to finish in time because I had put it off from the bad taste of the first episode. But ultimately, yeah, like I I am going to go back. I am going to finish it. Have you heard if they're doing season three?
0: As far as I know, they are doing season three. I'd be shocked if they weren't. But you know how it is with animation sometimes, especially with the big companies, even when they have a a hit on their hands. Animation departments get so rapidly get closed down and restructured into something else. Like I still remember Spectacular Spider-Man being, what I think, still the best animated Spider-Man television show ever made. Everybody seemed to. It was a hit, and then suddenly it was just gone because Marvel restructured their entire animation company and put somebody else in charge of it who didn't want that to be the show. He wanted to do stuff that was more kiddie, And, you know, so you never can say for sure with stuff like this, but as far as I can tell, Harley Quinn has been a, a quantified hit for them, and it's easy to see why once you get past the... I feel like, yeah, initial... So not stumbles maybe, but so much as starting off being exactly what you were afraid it was going to be.
1: I think I may have been prejudiced against it as well because of the promotional clips that were released when the show came out really played Mm -hmm. up like, Hey, this one's got F bombs and violence and like the little teaser and promo clips they were releasing. I I think that it painted a picture of a certain show that when I sat and watched the first one, I was like, yeah, if this is what I thought they were going to deliver me. And then it was sort of like, But there was more. They delivered more. There was more under the hood than just that. There was actual, like, (sighs) good gags and also similar, this is going to sound completely nuts, maybe, similar to Brave and the Bold. Did you watch Brave and the Bold? Yeah, I liked Brave and the Bold. Similar to Brave and the Bold in that it uses the DCU like a playground? Mm-hmm. Um, now, totally, completely different than Brave and the Bold, but the same—the same idea of like, hey, we've got all these toys in the toy box, and then it's kind of like anything goes from there. And Brave and the Bold is the closest thing I can think of to Harley Quinn in that spirit of uh, Teen Titans is does this as well, but doesn't is not as richly immersed in the lore of the DCU but basically has all these toys in the toy box and just plays with them. And and Harley does a lot of that. I mean, you'll see a lot of familiar faces from the Batman universe, of course. A lot of uh, semi unfamiliar faces from the Batman universe, like like D list villain Maxi Zeus and things like that, that come into play. Um, yeah, it's a lot. There's of, a joy there, though, as yeah. who's read DC comics for a long
0: time of seeing these like characters you never thought you'd see an animated version mm-hmm. of popping up in here. I mean, Kite Man is a pretty major supporting character in the series. i say, so like, really?
1: I think it's also helping me. I'm I'm very <laughs> Harley is Joker's mall. Um, she doesn't have, I have trouble taking Harley as a solo character. I think of her as like still sort of a sidekick or or very derivative and really for the past 15 years or more, they've been pushing her as like a standalone anti-hero and Mm. it's never quite taken with me. Like I've never quite gotten how that character exists apart from her ties to Joker and they're just now starting to win me over on that stuff. With with yeah. Birds of Prey and with this, it's like, okay, I can see this. This is sort of, it's closer to something like Deadpool, where basically you have a, a bad guy that's got a big Bugs Bunny streak.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, She's she's got, she's turning from a straight up, a, a villainous character to someone who is in, in the gray and doesn't really know who she wants to be, but definitely doesn't want to be a straight up good guy either, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I think they've found a way to make that interesting by, you know, I think exploring the, the nature of coming out of a toxic relationship. Also some of the comics explored and the movie, uh, I, I think is a good way of sort of getting into her psyche of who she is. Someone trying to come into their own after she's just felt like, as we did felt like she was just a shadow of this other character an extension of this other character. How do you extend that out? And I feel like that was the key right there. And here, even though it's done with a lot of comedic intent, uh, I mean, because this show is really funny, I thought mm. there actually is a, a good degree of sensitivity to how they're handling that aspect, that, you know, of it as well. So, i I don't think there's anything here that really didn't work for me. As I said, I really love so much Ron Funch's King Shark, who here is played differently than we've ever seen him before as this. I mean, he's basically like a wannabe stand-up comic at this point who's getting over what, you know, would seem like alcoholism if you were to translate it to our world, but here is it's eating people. <laughs> so he, like, doesn't want to be the guy who eats people, but he's a shark, and so when there's blood, he tends to freak out and, like, have a weakness and start eating people again, and it's played for great hilarity. And also, I'm just going to say, my favorite version of Bane in anything— Right now with Jason, uh, James Adomian as Bane, who's just using the, you know, the, the Dark Knight Rises Bane type voice, but in that exaggerated comic sense that just makes him, he's kind of twee, <laughs> which is a bizarre way to play Bane, but he is, and I kind of love it. Uh Sadly, no bonus features here, but there's more than enough content for what is actually a really reasonable price for these you can get this for like 25 bucks for both seasons uh, on blu-ray that's a pretty good deal for two seasons of a show that you're almost certainly going to come back to and watch i
1: think multiple times and honestly like now that i think about it when you mention the price and we've gone through so many of these dc animated things you and i and mm. i'm i'm typically like lukewarm to cold on them so for us to be saying this is pretty good that's it is pretty good if you already like this stuff you're gonna love this <laughs>
0: Yeah, for, for John to say that, that's a huge deal, because I'll have DC stuff. I'm like, I like this, and you're like, eh, it's fine, I guess. Uh, <laughs> so, for you to come out and go, I admit it, this is actually pretty good. Yeah, that those are strong words. And, I mean, like, we all barely even touched on the cast. There's, like, Diedrich Bader, Rachel Dratch, Giancarlo Esposito, T- Michael Ironside, Wayne Knight... Uh, Christopher Maloney, Alfred Molina, Jim Rash, Will Sasso, Wanda Sykes, Jacob Tremblay, uh, Je- Jessica Walter, uh, sadly passed away, but she plays Granny Goodness in here, Scott Porter, uh, Christy, Amant- oh boy, Diamantopoulos, Tom Kenny, George Lopez, Howie Mandel, Natalie Morales. It's just a shit ton of like. Both really experienced great voice actors and actors known better for other things who come in here to do these voices. And, yeah, I know we've gone on about this for a while, but I really think it's important to emphasize how good I think this series really is and how much I really am crossing my fingers there is, in fact, a third season. But let's continue talking about animation. And we will talk about a movie that just came out, The Croods, A New Age. Alternately, The Croods 2, if you will. This is a sequel to Universal Pictures' 2013 film, The Croods, which was actually a sizable hit. Uh, It made half a billion dollars, which is not bad at all for an animated film. In fact, I remember we saw the review, we went in to see it going, this looks like just another like Ice Age type thing. You know, like, okay, mm. it'll be fine, but nothing to remember. And I was surprised how much I enjoyed it. I was like, no, that was, that was kind of fun. This film about cavemen and but you know, played for, in a Flintstonesy sort of caveman world. <laughs> you know, it's it's this is clearly not going for realism, if you will, with Nicholas Cage as the dad, Grug, Emma Stone as his teenage daughter, uh Rye Reynolds as guy who's a cave boy who's who's Emma Stone's boyfriend and uh Leslie Mann as Hope, the the wife, as well as Peter Dinklage as Phil, who is uh I think he's like grandfather or something, I can't remember. Anyway. I was like, oh, that was cute. And that was like a sequel after all these years and especially coming out during like, you know, the COVID. They're just shitting this thing out. And to my surprise, I actually liked The Crudes and New Age better than I liked The Crudes even. And I liked the first one. I was actually quite charmed with this film that introduces a whole series of new characters here as they're all looking along with their pets, Chunky and Douglas. They're looking for a new place to call home dealing with all the crazy creatures and you know sort of a not they're not real dinosaurs they're like sort of mashups of like dinosaurian qualities and and today's world creatures if you will and they get they come across this huge wall and uh they're like what is that but this neck grabs them and captures them and it turns out there's this utopia behind the wall with no monsters and just this nice couple, the the bettermans, Phil and hope who are like, Hey, come on in. And they basically Swiss family Robinson. And they're kind of like, I mean, it's a gated community basically, <laughs> you know, it's like really nice. And they've kind of figured out caveman technology, but they're a little condescending towards the Croods. And, uh, you know, each character has their own sort of relationship with these characters and their own, uh, son that's there. And it turns into a sort of—I mean, it's—it's it's very y But I thought there were a lot of laughs to be had in this thing, and I like the addition of some of the new cast here as well. Uh, Leslie Mann, Kelly Marie Tran. Uh, you know, um, yeah, I forgot to mention Catherine Keener is actually is is uh, Grug's wife. Uh, Clark Duke, Clarice Leachman, uh, of course, playing an old cave woman who is the mom of the the Bettermans. I. I thought this was charming. I'm curious to know what you thought.
1: I think it's okay. Um there's there's a good amount of political subtext, kind of haves and have nots sort of thing going on where the Neanderthal family can't understand why the Bettermans if there's if there's if they live in a land of plenty and that there's food and resources all around, why aren't they willing to share those things? And mm. it makes it seem like it's going to be a movie with a a stronger message and then it just kind of becomes like a big action adventure ending, which is fine. It's a kid's movie, but Mm. it makes me wonder what happened in the writer's room because there's definitely a thread that they pull on for most of the movie. That's sort of, again, this, this war between classes and societal classes. And you have these Neanderthals and you have the Homo sapiens and they, they don't know, Hey, if you have all these bananas, why can't we eat the bananas? You know, what's the reason? Well, it doesn't get any deeper than, oh, there's crazy monkeys. And then they fight crazy <laughs> monkeys at the end. Um, and so it it was disappointing in that way because I thought they were going somewhere with it. And I thought, oh, this is a really interesting um, through line for a kid's movie. Like this, this stuff about classism is like, this is much better than the typical follow your dream stuff that's in every single kid's movie ever made. And then that doesn't pan out. And so I was a little bit, you know... I kind of just shrugged off the ending um, I think it's gorgeous it's eye-popping, it looks very similar to Trolls, it's from the same studio but it has the same like psychedelic rainbow color palette as Trolls and all of the mm. bizarre animals and plants that Trolls have, where stuff you're right, stuff isn't Caveman, it's like some fantasy Dr. Seussian version of like what Caveman would be um, yeah I I, lowercase L liked this movie. Uh, (laughs) So I don't want to dismiss it with faint praise. Uh, I I was entertained by it most of the time. Um, And, you know, if I was going to compare the first and second one, I probably did like this one more than the second one. I can certainly remember it more than the... Excuse me, I did like this more than the first one. I can certainly remember it more than the first one. I have trouble remembering sort of what happens in the first one. Other than they're like traveling from point A to point B in the first one, right? It is yeah, like I, Ice Age. It is literally like it, we have to find a new place to live.
0: I mean, that was like six years ago when the first one came out. So I haven't seen it since then. And I'm like, I, when I watched this one, I was like, wait, is the teenage boy character, was he in the first one? It's like, yeah, he was kind of the crux of the first one. I just didn't remember. You didn't watch that all that the was. seasons
1: of The crudes on Netflix? Is there- Oh yeah, you know, it has a show are, and everything.
0: Does it? I didn't even know yeah. it had a show, but well, and, uh, and I can't it speak just, to the show-
1: it also just fell out of the box office uh top five like a week ago, two weeks ago. Oh really? Yeah, because because of COVID and lockdown, like the movies have been just living in the uh top ten box office. Like if they're released, they just sit yeah. there forever and ever and ever because there's no competition. But Yeah,
0: yeah I I I'll see like things that not through critic notices through like, you know, websites are like here's the list of release dates a shit that gets dropped in theaters for one weekend that are like the worst horror movies. <laughs> that you're like, what? I never even heard of this fucking thing that they're like, yeah, we'll just shit it out here and hope that like it makes its three million dollar budget back. But so the big stuff like this is gonna sit on a throne for a while and keep raking in what dollars there are to make, which you know, probably still wasn't enormous, I guess. Uh, it looks like $161 million worldwide uh, against a $65 million budget, which is, you know, pretty good for a film coming out during COVID, but not great at all compared to the original one's take. Anyway, I do think this is worth checking out. It looks great on Blu-ray. It's um, There's actually even a lot of bonus features, including a commentary track, some sizable featurettes, 23 minutes of deleted scenes, uh, lots of stuff that's extra animated, cute, funny stuff for the kids. I mean, altogether, they put together a solid package for this kind of movie that not only will the kids want to watch the movie, they'll want to watch the stacks of bonus stuff for them here as well. So if you do have kids, this is a good buy. Anyway, that's my take on The Croods too. The Croods, duh. Now we'll move into st- uh, strictly for adults' movies, or at least teenagers and up, with The film The Swordsman, a South Korean 2020 period action film. Well, I started off watching this movie for at least the first half of it going, I'm not entirely clear what's going on. It's kind of confusing. And this isn't from like, I'm not some casual viewer of Korean films either. I absorb a lot of these. And I even knew a decent amount about historically what was going on in this period uh, you know, I, I go, but still, the story's told in a sort of, I don't know, uh, it's not completely nonlinear, but there's just enough of that in the first act for you to go, I, I don't know what, what exactly is happening here. But ultimately, what it comes down to is uh, taken if uh, Liam, ne- in, a, in ancient South Korea, if Liam Neeson was slowly losing his eyesight, but he is, you know, the ultimate badass with this guy whose daughter ends up. Being abducted, and he's like, "Well, fuck that <laughs> and goes there's a lot more going on here than that, like v- him wanting vengeance for his former king, that he you know lost in a big fight against him having his own feelings about the fact that his uh eyesight is failing him, even though he's the best swordsman in the land, and you know may or may not be able to beat the guy who originally took his eyesight in the first place." And then it's got the great Joe Taslam in it. If you've watched Warrior, he plays a really great character in that. This guy's quickly turning into one of my favorite Asian actors out there. He's got like a real he's...
1: movie star quality. I mean, yeah, not like, got... I've, I haven't seen somebody in a while that's like, and, and I remembered him from The Night Comes for Us. Mm. And uh, was like, this guy is like, when he walks onto the screen, he's the person that you, you want to look at. Like the whole time yeah. he's on screen. And I'm like, that's a freaking movie star. Like, that's, that's not been, just an actor, that's a movie star. That was
0: my only problem with the show Warrior, which I really like, is that he should have been the main character. The other guy's fine, mm-hmm. he's good, but man, Taslim's just, he is a fucking star. You look at him and you go, that's a good-looking guy, he has a unique look, uh, he he, both speaks flawless Korean and flawless English, he is a really accomplished martial artist and just makes it look great on camera and to great effect here as well as on that show. I think this is a lot of fun. I mean, plot-wise, it's nothing really special or new, but when it gets down to business, I, it's really well shot. It's very violent. The martial arts are cool and energetic and vibrant to watch. I, I had fun with this.
1: I think when you say well shot, I, I think the I think the action is well shot in regards to like it's mm-hmm. cut well and and framed well i actually thought it looked kind of little it looked a little tv to me and i think i was expecting Mm. a more beautiful film um it's not i don't know where i came up with that idea maybe because the poster art and everything have been really Mm. beautiful so i expected something that was more artful and it's kind of meat and potatoes in regards to look other than you are right about the fact that the stuff the action sequence are action sequences are captured well, even if they're not, you know, bathed in golden light, it's their, their scenes that are captured well. And the sword fighting scenes are all pretty good. I, I wish I could, I wish I liked the movie more. Um, I just thought it was okay. It's a, it's a period mm. drama. Um, I liked, you know, I liked a lot of the costumes with period costumes and things like that. You know, if you like these costume period dramas, um, but I thought the, movie itself like the drama at the heart of it uh, I never found it particularly compelling o- outside of like you know then he'd pull his sword out and I would you know sit up in my seat like okay now f- things are going to get real and there'd be a sword fight and then it would be you know another 20-30 minutes of just like talking and <laughs> that sort of thing and and that's fine uh, if the talking is like super interesting I just never you know it it I feel like it gets the job done i don't i i feel bad <laughs> why do i feel why bad?
0: it's fine i think it's i think what it is is we've seen a lot of films that are a lot like this mm-hmm. that are just nowhere near as good as this uh in the past couple years where we were like okay it's another one of these uh the period piece swordsman revenge um and a lot of the time it's got too much cg it's The fights are just okay. The story is so all over the place, it's almost impossible to follow. This one, once you, about the halfway point, you're like, okay, now I know, I understand everything that's going on, and it's really not that complicated. But, so I'm like, I I wasn't caught up in constantly trying to figure out the machinations of a really overly complex plot. It's a relatively small amount of characters, and the fights are genuinely all not CG. They the, What I really liked about this, the fights remind me more of stuff from the 80s, from Hong Kong movies, of something you would have seen from like Tai Chi Master or something, where yes, there's wire work, but it's not egregiously using wire work, mm-hmm. which admittedly the Tai Chi Master was. But, you know, it's really trying to make it look as real as they can with people who actually know what they're doing. And I super appreciate that in this sort of film. I thought when there was action and there's a decent amount of it, that it gave me a satisfaction. I don't get from these type of films as much as I used to.
1: Yeah. But, you know, I, I don't disagree. <laughs> I think, you know, as I was watching it, I started to think about Westerns and mm. how Westerns there are Westerns that are, they are shoddy Westerns. There are Westerns that deliver like a baseline expectation of the tropes of the Western. And then there's stuff that's like beyond that. There's stuff that sort of like elevates whatever the genre tropes are. And swordsman was one where it's like, ah, uh, it had all the promise and potential to elevate beyond that. The baseline thrills of the tropes. And it, to me, it was, it was just, here's, here's the tropes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Here's the swordsman oh, totally. that has you know, has trouble seeing, and here's the kidnapped daughter, and here's the ruthless warlord, and you know, it's it's fine, it's fine. It's okay, fine. fair enough.
0: Well, I want to move on to one I didn't even give you, which this never happens. Like we, I, I'll give him you anything. Spare like me. I, I gave, I even gave you that one about like horror Christmas toys, whatever it was. Called. The one I like that wasn't. Yeah, which you ended up liking much to my shock. I was like, oh, I thought you were going to be mad at me for giving you that one, but you were like, oh, I kind of enjoyed that. So, But this one, I guarantee you, you would not have enjoyed. And it is another samurai film, and a lot of people were very excited about this because of the title and the concept. Crazy Samurai 400 versus 1. I went, okay, this sounds cool. It's got a big thing on the title. One of the best action films in recent years. Hey, that sounds like something I'd enjoy. i love to see something like, you know, over-the-top violence And this is also doing a thing where it's a one-shot film, where it's like, oh, we're doing all this. It's one guy, after a certain point in the movie, it cuts, and then the rest of the movie is just the camera following him and him killing 400 samurai. And that's all it is. There's almost no plot. There's something about, I guess, the one samurai came in and killed his master, And so, or then he or maybe he came in and killed the samurai's master. I don't even know. It's like the first five minutes of the film, and then the film just goes from him wandering around the countryside and endless hordes in small groups of samurai coming up and and coming at this guy as he kills them with occasionally him taking a break for a second, like to like grab some wine out of a barrel or something and then going right back to it. And that's all the movie is. There's no plot. Now, if this was really incredibly well filmed, had some startling action to it where I was like, wow, look, I wonder how they did that. There wasn't once in this whole thing. I went, I wonder how they did that because almost every attack is just a guy running at him with a sword over his head. Oh, and he goes, Wah, And slices him down the side. Well, the trick like, That's would be to escalate.
1: Right. The trick would be to, yeah. to like, it does not keep like does climb, not. climb, climb. So that everything gets bigger. The stakes get bigger. Nope, no,
0: not that just one group after another. It was, Dreadfully dull, and I absolutely do not understand. I mean, there's no characterization of any kind here. It's originally released as Crazy Samurai Musa- Musashi, which is based on a real life Japanese samurai, obviously, Japanese samurai. Who is one of the guys there are legends about mm-hmm. him that say anything from in one day he killed seventy samurai to one day he killed six hundred samurai, depending on which one that you hear he was a real guy who was considered one of the most legendary sword swordsmen of his era is literally referred to as a sword saint, you know, but this doesn't do any bring in anything about a backstory or anything there at all. It's just those scenes. They're not shot particularly interestingly. There's some nice framing here and there, but that's about as much as I can say for this. I, I just, I did not even want to finish it. I was like, God damn it. I mean, I did, but fuck. <laughs> so Crazy Samurai 400 versus one, I absolutely cannot recommend, even to the, those super hardcore samurai fans. I don't know what they were thinking with this one. I don't know why someone called this one of the great action movies, because I'm like, Is this your first action movie? You want to show this guy the raid and them go, oh, that other movie was crap. I see now. Anyway, we're not going to spend any excess time talking about that because John, as I said, did not see it. We are going to go into our next title, which was a nice little um, survival thriller as opposed to survival horror, uh, which in survival horror, all the survivors try to kill each other. Survival thriller, (laughs) the survivors uh, get along. I'm stealing that from uh, our friend and previous digital noise con- contributor, Richard Whittaker, in his review in the Austin Chronicle. This is a uh, – Breaking Surface is a cool little survival thriller with two sisters who are going out uh, as something they like to do, go deep scuba diving under this Norwegian fjord. And what happens is they're down there and this big – there's a avalanche – of the cliffs above it. And this big boulder falls down and ends up trapping one of the sisters at the bottom underneath detritus. And the other sister has got to figure out how to save her, you know, before time runs out. And it's definitely not played in an American thriller sort of sense. There's no dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun, you know, none of that shit. It's more like if you've seen The Wave or something like that, it feels like more of that type of energy, even though it's on a much smaller scale, obviously. But I gotta admit, this is a movie that really brought me into it. There's minor character moments that I really liked to tell you just as much as you need to know about the relationship, which is somewhat complex between these two sisters, and what's at stake emotionally between them here. And overall, I was kind of charmed by this.
1: Yeah, this was really good. It had been a while since I'd seen such an efficient kind of, efficient. you know, white knuckle thrill ride, as the <laughs> as the posters might say. Um, no, this was, it was gorgeously shot as well, like a, re- a really beautiful movie. Um, the effects in this are, are mind-blowing. Like, the effects in this are so freaking good and impeccable. And I would highly recommend that if anyone watches this, that they don't get it streaming um, that they go ahead and purchase the physical because there's making of stuff that is like the magician revealing the trick uh, that is so, so cool. So cool. Um, So cool how much of it is just not real. Like, not even there. And the illusion is, you know, completely sells the illusion. I think there are people out in the, I, I think, I know that there are people out in this world where animal death on film is a like a an absolute taboo, that that's right. their make or break. We have our friend Brian Salisbury's that way. Animal death in film is a is a make or break. I I can't reconcile that because I can watch people die on film. I can watch fake people die on film. That's I how I feel about it. On like, exactly. Um, I can
0: separate myself enough to go. That dog did not really die. Yes, or was hurt in
1: any way. Yeah, <laughs> and I can't help but think. So this it was I would have thought was just like really universally praised and discovered that it wasn't that there there is like a lot of people who don't like this movie and i think part of it has to do with yes there is uh there is human animal violence in the film and i think for some that's just a deal breaker so the consider that your your you know warning label or trigger warning or whatever you want to say in regards to breaking surface but other than that uh, I don't have a problem with that as a as a narrative tool, and I thought the movie was incredibly suspenseful. It has a, it has just enough character stuff. Uh, it's it's kind of sketched in at the beginning to at least let you get a grasp on who they are and what their relationship is. It doesn't go much yeah. deeper than that. It's just sort of here's here's where they were when they were younger. Here's where they are now in their lives. Now let's get into it. Um, so that they're not just complete ciphers. It's a very short movie. Like, I think it it doesn't even clock in at like an hour and a half, right? It's like an hour and 20 or something like that.
0: Yeah, it's very short. It's efficient, like you said. I mean, it gets right to the situation very quickly. Uh, So there's not a lot of lead in. There's very little in the way of like, there's just enough you need to know to know that not only the situation concerning for this character, because her sister is down there trapped, but because they have a previous They have previous things that have happened that add emotional resonance to the scenario for the surviving sister, the one that's trying to help the other one as well.
1: I can't imagine being the actresses in it who neither one of them had been like a professional diver before shooting this. And like the stuff that they're asked to do underwater while still emoting, like having full on conversations underwater while they're still acting Like it's so good. (laughs) This movie's so good. It gets a very, very, very strong recommendation recommendation from me. Um, I really liked breaking surface.
0: Well, we're going to move on to our next one, which is going way back to 1941. And I know someone someday is going to ask me, so I'm just going to answer this. Why do you guys keep reviewing all these Bob Hope movies? (laughs) Well, little secret. When I was a little kid, I thought Bob Hope was the funniest man alive. I, I don't know why he was the one that I picked. Probably because my dad liked Bob Hope and I happened to catch some Bob Hope stuff. But he, to me, was like, he was the stand-up comedian that I knew the best as a real little kid. So I've always had this sort of, and I know he was probably a real prick in real life. In fact, arguably really was. But, hey, he was one of the guys who did the most for the soldiers. There's no denying that he was the guy who went out there over and over and over again, over decades to entertain the troops, no matter what was going on, dedicated a large part of his life to that. And Hey man, that's kind of cool. And caught in the draft is kind of a aspect of that. He plays Bob Hope plays Don Bolton, who is basically playing a, a take on himself. He's a movie star, but he's super vain. And he's actually, even though he plays these heroes, he is a total coward, definitely wouldn't be a good soldier, will do anything to worm out of getting caught up in to the draft, which is his absolute biggest fear. Uh, but when a colonel comes to the studio set as a consultant, he brings his beautiful daughter, played by the lovely Dorothy L'Amour, who at the time was quite the bombshell. And Don is into it. It's like, oh, my God, this is great. Uh, And also, if I talk her into marrying me, that'll get me out of the draft, which I guess was a thing then. So, (laughs) uh, unfortunately, uh, the colonel doesn't really take to him. They're not getting along, but he still manages to get a date with her, even proposes to her. And he ends up in a situation where he realizes, wait, I actually am in love. And. They have a big disagreement, and she kicks him out, but he's like, no, I'm in love. I want to impress her. So he goes, you know what? I'm going to get a fit, an actor to pose as the enlistment guy at an army office, and so she can see this and say, look, he's actually going to enlist for me. The problem is that uh, doesn't work out. It turns out he actually enlists for real, and so... You get what it's going. He goes into the army and yada, yada, yada. Shit happens. He has to get over his cowardice. I mean, this is a goofy 1940s movie with a very unfortunate blackface sequence in it. Um, But at the time, this was a huge hit. It was the second most successful release of 1941 for Paramount Studios. You know, when I ever hear a film was that big, even if it's forgotten by time, it makes me interested. Even if it's something that you go, well, this would, this doesn't sell these days. i it, I want to know more about film history and what was going on. And I get it. This is not, I mean, I definitely like the on the road movies with hope and Crosby better than I like this, that I think he doesn't have a equal to play off of here. And that's part of the problem. Dorothy L'Amour certainly isn't living up to the uh, being an equal for him for the jokes. He needs that. And I don't think that, I think that's one of the reasons this isn't as funny as some of that other stuff.
1: I will say that the blackface in this, uh, not in defense of, but they are they are parodying Al Jolson himself. Like they're very mm. directly like. So it's not the butt of the joke of the blackface is a blackface performer. I don't know if that right. makes it more palatable to anyone listening, but <laughs> that is the case because um, it's a joke where he you know he's he does Mame. So it's an Al Jolson riff, um, which was huge. Yeah, this was uh, this. You know, some of the gags are dated uh a little dusty some of the big gags but the energy and this was the same thing i found with the road movie that we watched um the energy of it still feels frankly modern and i get that like you know the setting the the there's a lot of it that is obviously not modern but there's a rhythm to delivery of humor there's a certain thing about how self-deprecating he is as well um there's something about Hope's stuff that as I begin to scratch the surface of it, cause I'm not well-versed in it at all. There's really something lasting about the style of comedy that I think has carried on through the decades uh, in a very specific way in regards to like the kind of like self-deprecating loose, you're kind of riffing sometimes Um, it's like a sides Groucho Marx has it as well. Um, where, you know, it'll be a throwaway line. It'll be like the funniest thing that that's come out of his mouth, like that sort of thing. (laughs) Um, I really liked this, uh, more than I thought that I would, again, there's stuff in it. Like, Oh, he jumped out of a plane without a, or was going to jump out of a plane with no parachute on and like, you know, driving a tank and it wrecking things. And there's stuff in it that's like kind of dusty and old, but like if you were to hold this up, Next to something like, let's say, Polly Shores in the army now, <laughs> and just laugh for laugh, which is funnier, even though yeah. one is newer. Caught in the draft is funnier.
0: I agree with you there, but I mean that is a low bar <laughs>
1: you're listing there. It
0: doesn't hold up against, say, Stripes.
1: It is sort of a proto Stripes, though, isn't it? That this, this it, guy it, it is, is like a loser that's like ends up in the army. I mean, yeah, it's, he's
0: getting in the army to impress a girl. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, it's very much like a like an ancestor of of stripes. Uh, no, I dug this. I actually went and looked up some stuff on Dorothy Moore because I was like, how did she fall into this role of always being associated with Hope? And I found out that it was because in the movies with Bing Crosby, she realized in their first one that oh, they're going to improv, and so my deal is to get out of the way and let them work their magic and just react appropriately in character and Hope had said that she was one of the few that was like that. So they would invite her back to come and do other stuff with them because she knew what the game was. Right. So I I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, Yeah, this was, this was a lot of fun. Uh, It it did catch me by surprise. It made for a nice little Sunday afternoon matinee viewing. It was a, it's a good time.
0: And if you're interested in the historical context, there's actually a really good commentary track here from two historians, uh, Michael Schlesinger and, uh, Stan Tafel, who go deep into this, but are, are really quite funny with what they're doing here. There's a entertaining the troops by Bob Hope's biographer, Richard Grudkins, who talks about him getting into being the USO and entertaining troops from the very beginning of its inception in 1943. Uh, a command performance 1944, it's about six and a half minutes of a film newsreel showing the command performance radio segment that was created for the military forces with Bob. Uh, this command performance 1945, same basic thing, a filmed version of it. Uh, this Hollywood Victory Caravan for 20 minutes, which was a propaganda film made by the government and Paramount Pictures, talking about, uh, you know, trying to get you to buy war bonds basically, but it brings in. Hope and Crosby in a bit in it as well as Barbara Stanwyck Alan Ladd Bing Crosby and Humphrey Bogart there's KLSC Bob Hope promo which is clips from uh, various different things that uh, Kino Lober Studio Classics have released which they've done quite a bit. And then there's trailers for this and a series of the road films. So if you're into like historical perspective on Bob Hope, this is actually one of the best sets they put out so far for that sort of thing. Like I said, I think it's a decent movie. I just, I definitely enjoy his team ups with Crosby better than I did just this one where he's running a little more solo, but let's move on to another film. Not quite as, Longly dated as that one, but still back from 1985, the film by Andre Konchalovsky, Kanchal- which was nominated for uh, Academy Awards for John Voight and Eric Roberts. Something you don't you don't hear that very often, or other than this movie, pretty much. And that's Runaway Train. Now I know. The title sounds like, oh, God, Runaway Train, starring Eric Roberts and John Voight. You're like, oh, I think I saw that in a red box, right? That doesn't sound good. But what if I told you that this film was based on an original script that ended up never being produced by Akira Kurosawa? That, you know, raises your hackles. a little. Wait, really? Okay, so is it one of those ones where they totally rewrote the thing? Well, I mean, it was rewritten, obviously, because you had to put it into English. But to all reports not that much and what you end up with is a pretty solid little actioner that is definitely uh on the tr- on on the rails if you will <laughs> as two escaped convicts the older sort of hero bad guy John Void is Oscar Mannheim or just Manny who as he's escaping basically the this younger Guy Buck, played by Eric Roberts, is like, hey, what you doing? What you doing, man? Hey, can I help? Can I go along? Can I go? He's like, oh, Jesus Christ. Okay, fine. And the two of them end up sort of after they get out, they basically like, hey, we're going to break into this train. We're just going to take it and like we'll hide in this train car. Problem is, is that the train has gone out of control and there ain't nobody driving it. (laughs) And there's no way to stop it. And it's just getting faster and faster. And they don't even know it. For a portion of this film as they're in here. Later on, it brings in Rebecca de Mornay as a train worker and an interestingly, totally non-glamorous role for Rebecca de Mornay, who at that time was much better known for the very sexy, sultry role she was playing, like famously in Risky Business with Tom Cruise. But I found this a really effective still, this is like the third time I've seen this and I still find this really effective and fun and cool every time I see it.
1: Do you think that Eric Roberts and John Voight are giving good performances in this movie? I think Oscar they are the performances. I,
0: I think they are very heightened performances. But I would also say the same thing about, say, Anthony Hopkins in Silence of the Lambs. It's a very heightened performance, but I don't think that necessarily makes it a bad performance. Um, it, it's it's a little over the top, but I think without it, this film wouldn't
1: work as well as it does. They are. Uh... I felt like I was watching a a tug-of-war as to who could chew their accent the most. Was Voight or Voight's weird Boston thing that he has going, like this quasi-northeastern Boston thing, and Robert's this bizarre southern accent, and it sounds like they're at war, and each one is trying to one-up the other in regards to who can produce the most bizarre vowel sounds out of their mouth <laughs> uh it's interesting both of them are i thought hammy um and so to hear that they were both nominated for academy awards i find surprising they're committed they're committed it's very um it's they are both they are both trying to upstage the other and they both have it turned up to about 11 the whole movie uh, I think this is pretty good um you know i think I think my my big issue with it was how unlikable the two leads are and how much time you spend with them um for a thriller yeah. it's kind of you know we 're used to our action thrillers having very clear cut lines in regards to the protagonist who's the hero, even if the hero is sort of like rugged and like has a dirty past. This really doesn't offer any, um, any of that kind of like heroic stuff until the very, very end, which is kind of the movie's point. Like, I think that's what it's, you know, if it feels like it has something to say, I think that's what it's, you know, it ends with a quote and I think that's what it's trying to like get across. Um, right. So I get the thematically the purpose, but it's a little uh it's a little bit of a of a crappy time spending with these guys that you don't really like. Um, you know, now, and they're, they're
0: supposed to be villains
1: out and out, you yeah. know.
0: It's just the degree of their villainy. I think it like you said, that's the point, because it does come to a point where they're sort of discussing what's okay and what's not. Mm-hmm. You know, where where does that where does this idea of total freedom from a criminal, how far does that extend?
1: Yeah, I'm surprised, and I guess it's because this was Golden Globus. I'm surprised this doesn't have a better reputation in general. No matter what I thought of it, it feels like the kind of film that would be um, almost like an '80s uh, action movie classic. You know that people would speak of it in the same breath as you know some other lesser movies, um, and I think that just simply has to do with the fact that it was canon. You know, more than anything else, it's just it didn't have a it didn't have a big studio behind it, so. Uh, you know, it hasn't been as supported with re-releases and that sort of thing. Um, Rebecca De Mornay is unrecognizable. I watched the whole entire movie and did not know it was her until the movie was over. I had seen the cover and I would completely forgotten. So her name is on the cover, but I, it was just out of sight, out of mind. I'm watching the movie right. and I'm just like, who is that person? Like, I've never seen that actress before. She's so good. <laughs> I had seen her before. Um, yeah, this is this is a... I, you know this is a movie that like I'm not nuts about but it's still a recommend like this is uh it deserves better this is a strong release and also uh, the the effects are pretty good um in regards to the train stuff like you you never get the it feels like they're on a train that's out of control you know there's, there's some, a runaway yeah there's like some,
0: some kind of runaway train they
1: they do a really good job with the green screen stuff on the outside of the train it's not green screen it's um rear projection stuff on the outside mm-hmm. of the train where if they're standing on the train set and they they've got essentially a uh, like a projector set up where they're running the footage of you know snowbanks and trees behind them moving at a very 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 high rate but they hide they're, the, they hide the weaknesses of the effect by making sure that in the foreground there are branches and stuff going by as well. So even though they're doing the old-fashioned rear projection, they're keeping the realism going by making the camera feel as if it's traveling right alongside the train. Instead mm-hmm. of just, oh, we're just capturing this shot and the camera's like in a room with the train, the camera, they have a they sense of movement with the branches going in front of the camera. That's a lot of, you know... <laughs> That's a lot of explanation to just say, hey, the effects hold up. But hey, the effects hold up. Um, they do hold up. Yeah.
0: Uh, also notable for the very first screen appearance of Danny Trejo as a prison boxer and Tiny Lister as a, a security very guard young in the man. prison. Yeah, both of them. First performance. It's
1: also co written by Eddie Bunker, who people will know from Reservoir Dogs, uh, real life ex con Eddie Bunker. um huh. And he has a little small role at the beginning. He plays John Voigt's uh confidant in prison. Um mm-hmm. but yeah, he was he was actually uh he wrote, I think, a memoir about his time in prison. So he probably brought a lot of real-world prison knowledge to the uh to the screenplay.
0: And there is a commentary track with Eric Roberts and two film critics talking about the movie, and then there's a trailers from hell, like a very short episode where with a little bit of commentary about uh, the film and the history behind it, but that's about it, other than trailers and stuff on here. Uh, Not a lot of bonus features. We'll move on to our next one, which is from 1972, one of those movies I've always known about, always meant to see, never got around, to seeing Lady Sings the Blues until now. This is, of course, based on jazz singer Billie Holiday, which just had a movie about her that came out this year, The U.S. vs. Billie Holiday. This is loosely based on her 1956 autobiography, uh, and it was produced by Motown Productions for Paramount with Diana Ross, the legendary Diana Ross, playing... Billy Holiday here, which also included Billy D. Williams in the cast, Richard Pryor, James T. Callahan, and Scatman Carruthers. It was nominated for five Academy Awards in 1973, including Diana Ross for Best Actress. And of course, I wanted to see it. A, I love Billy Holiday. B, I love all the actors and actresses involved in this thing. Uh, what you don't realize going into this is that this is 144 minutes of some damn good performances, but a biopic that is I maybe it just set the the rules for musician biopics because when you watch this you're like oh this is like Walk the Line or Ray or all these movies that literally just kind of have all these notes that they have to hit along the way it's like that again I was like I genuinely was kind of bored by this outside of marveling at the very strong performances that were involved especially Diana Ross who's just tremendously good in this uh, even if she doesn't quite managed to match Billy Holiday's vocal stylings in terms of accuracy, not necessarily quality, but it's a very long movie and it's kind of, it it wants you to feel filthy and gross at points and it even is kind of bloody at moments and it's, it's interesting, but it's funny. I always thought, assumed because all the nominations this was widely thought of as a great movie, but it actually isn't. It's always been kind of thought of as it's okay, I mean, yeah, what I said. The actors are great, but the movie itself,
1: it's fine. Yeah, it's an early example of the music biopic uh, mm. for its, you know, setting that template, setting those, those. Uh, not to talk about tropes again, but setting those tropes up. Um, you know, you're seeing a lot of the uh, the addiction, the drug abuse, that sort of thing. But Diana Ross in this is interesting. I, you know, my deal with Diana Ross as an actress is that I often feel like she's good, but I often feel like she's miscast,
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: whether it's The Wiz, where she feels too old to play the part, or whether it's right. uh, Lady Sings the Blues, where she's she reads on screen like Diana Ross. You don't get that sense of illusion that's created sometimes when it's a, a highly imitated performance, like Jamie Foxx as Ray or something, where you forget that you're not watching Jamie Foxx. You always have an awareness that you're watching Diana Ross, you know, always she gives it her all like she's performing to the, the maximum of her own capabilities as an actress, but she's, she is still just Diana Ross. There's no feeling of, Oh, I'm watching Billie Holiday that you might get with a different musical, uh, biopic. Um, it's pretty good. It's, uh, you know, everybody is, is solid. It's well filmed. It's, uh, it's all around. Okay. It's, um, you know, I think narratively it doesn't make, I think the problems narratively are that it doesn't make a very strong connection between who Billy is as a person with Billy's addiction. Mm -hmm. Um, and so you kind of, it, it's, it ends up being one of those things where it hits the notes as presented from, like almost like a wiki page for Billie Holiday, where it's like, and then she did this, and then she does this, and then she struggles, and then she met this guy, and then she got addicted, and then she got out. And it's like, that's, a, that's, a, that's one way to tell a story, sure, but it really misses something when you're not, when whoever's in charge, whoever's writing the screenplay, whoever's directing, aren't trying to dig deeper and answer some questions about who that person is. And I don't think this movie's interested in in asking those deeper questions, I think it's just sort of interested in presenting a timeline, and that's fine. It's she's a talented person. It's still an interesting timeline, but there's there's more to mine. I and I didn't see the new one. I didn't see the new Billie Holiday movie. I, I
0: have not yet either. I hear it's quite good. Yeah, but uh, no, I, I want to. Like I said, I really like Billie Holiday, even if I'm just very lukewarm about this movie. Which I was just looking at some of the reviews at the time, and apparently, even for then. They were like, this thing is so loaded down by hoary old cliches of the biopic. So <laughs> it wasn't even the first to use a lot of these tropes and cliches, apparently. Uh, but obviously, it's a piece of history. I, I I think we've been on a weird quest to watch every last Richard Pryor film <laughs> of late. I'm still waiting for them to send Silver Streak. That's like my great white whale. I've never seen it. Yeah, we didn't
1: even watch it for the show. But like a month and a half ago, I saw California Suite with him and Bill Cosby.
0: <laughs> so there you go. See? Yeah, It was something about Richard Pryor, bringing him back. I guess so. uh, this comes with audio commentary from the producer, the director, and uh, artist manager, I don't even know what that is, Shelley Berger, who explored the film in detail. There's Behind the Blues, Lady Sings the Blues for 23 minutes, Diana Ross talking about the film's place in her career and how that worked out for her, Barry Gordy's work on the film, the script, the story, the cast and the performances, uh, direction, everything. And then there's 21 minutes of deleted scenes and very poor quality, but they're here uh, 20, you know, I'm sorry, 21 minutes of that. So, you know, interesting from a historical perspective, certainly, but I don't think it's a film that really holds up overall. If you're very interested in these actors, which I was, I think it's well worth a watch, but I don't think it really is a great film. It's just kind of more of an, interesting film. But we're going to figure, we're going to round this one out with a whole series of films that came in a new collection called John Hughes five movie collection. And don't worry, we're not going to go into depth about all this stuff, but I will say that, As is typical with collections like this that come out, a lot of the times you're like, oh, it's because these are coming out in new versions, right? And they want to get rid of the old copies, which, Pretty in Pink, which is in this, they literally just put out a new Paramount Presents version of this. So it's like, oh, okay. And in here, you've also got Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which is one that would certainly belong in any John Hughes collection. You've got Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, which obviously is well definitely belongs in a decent hey the best of john hughes collection and then you've got the little bit more on the on the you know on the middle line there the some kind of wonderful which i'm a big fan of because i think that's pretty in pink if it was good and it gender swapped <laughs> weirdly not directed by him not directed by him i know just produced and then 1988 she's having a baby which was the only one in the set i had not actually oh, same seen here before Uh, I was like, why would I I don't want to see a movie called She's Having a Baby, even though I really love Kevin Bacon and didn't know much about Elizabeth McGovern, who is playing the role here. But it's, you know, it's what it says it is. It's a couple who are like uh, Mm. it goes right from their wedding day through mainly Kevin Bacon's eyes with uh, lots of voiceover commentary from him, of course, with lots of scenes of him imagining the way things would go. Uh, Alec Baldwin plays his sort of loose party guy friend and everything. Um, and it's about them ending up, you know, ending up having a, a, she, her getting pregnant and following that path as he's going through all the insecurities and stuff in his head. You imagine, oh, what, that part of me really wants to just fuck this other hot girl that's here, you know, uh, that kind of thing. I'm like, okay, this- I mean... It's it's definitely a John Hughes movie. You watch it, and you're just loaded with John Hughes regulars who make appearances in this thing as small roles, uh, familiar faces. But it's just, and and all the tropes of John Hughes films—they're all here. It's just not that engaging. Maybe so, it's because I've never had a child, but
1: it's a I didn't rancid find it movie. Just an awful wow. rancid movie. Wow. I I this movie's terrible. She's having a baby's terrible, and it was my one <laughs> blind spot in the John Hughes movies. And the title is "She's Having a Baby," and Chris may have undersold it. She's having a baby in the last twenty minutes of the movie. For the first yeah. hour and fifty, unless the baby is referring to Kevin Bacon, and like he's, <laughs> he's a, a big, big man baby. baby. Yeah, the 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 dealing with an upcoming pregnancy part makes up about 20 minutes of the end of the movie and the rest of the movie is about Kevin Bacon kind of being a shithead he, the opening scene is him sitting in his car trying to decide whether he wants to walk out on his bride-to-be and then it never gets any better from there in regards to like what kind of person he is. It's awful this movie's awful and the only, it has these weird like family guy style cartoon asides for humor (sighs) so it punctuates with like he'll he'll say something or have some thought and then that thought will be illustrated and then it will like kind of go back to the movie he narrates apparently uh you know my good friend bill chambers from film film freak central was was reviewed it and was talking about how Apparently, for Hughes, this was semi autobiographical. He was a guy who wrote ad copy, and this character that Kevin Bacon plays wrote ad copy. And it was supposed to be about his his wife and their, their the birth of their first kid and what he was going through. And was so soundly rejected, it was it sat unreleased by the studio for like a year, and and from there on out, after she's having a baby, after the studio lost faith and she's having a baby, and after the the box office and critical reception were were you know all thumbs down and poisonous for she's having a baby that's when he became the mercenary hit maker who kept doing movies about uh people foiling bank robbers one after the other was like 101 dalmatians and home alone and another 101 dalmatians and (laughs) career opportunities you have like this swath of like movies where like hapless kid fights off bank robbers and they're like all the same movies in the 90s right Um, even
0: baby's day out yeah baby's day out
1: is another one (laughs) (laughs) um yeah it's just so that was a kind of turning point but the movie stinks i mean it stinks it's the worst thing in the set in my opinion um and and again it was the only thing that was new so you have these movies that i already love i you know i love i love love planes trains and automobiles one of my favorite movies of all time
0: i tear up every single time i watch this this movie at the end you know i mean spoiler just the whole like there's a there's just this feeling of warmth and forgiveness and friendship at the end that is just so incredibly effective, not triically at all, and just absolutely heartwarming that it just gets me every single fucking time. And there are scenes in this movie that no matter how many times I see them, I guffaw laughing when I watch them.
1: <laughs> you and I reviewed Pretty and Pink. We're both fairly positive on it. I think... Uh, oh no, I was, on, I was on the negative side. You were on Pretty the negative side?
0: I, yeah, I, I don't care for that movie at all.
1: <laughs> I don't I don't like Ducky. I mean, we talked about it then, but I don't like yeah. Ducky. Um, Ferris Bueller's Day Off is a favorite. I haven't visited it in a while. I know the internet soured on it, but a lot of that had to do with internet tastemakers, like specifically Chud, all yeah. the Chud writers back in the day of the early 2000s when the sites actually had power. Chud would yeah. write all these, Chud had an article that I think was like titled something like, ferris bueller is kind of an asshole and then people are like yeah this movie sucks it's kind of like when lewis black talked about candy corn and suddenly people are like candy corn is the worst candy ever and it's like where did this come from (laughs) never existed before that moment
0: i don't agree with those tastemakers i think ferris bueller is still wonderful yeah he is kind of an asshole that's not the point of the movie (laughs) point are you missing the point we are talking about chud here but you know (laughs) i i I think Ferris Bueller still holds up as a classic of its time. Certainly style. It's the most stylish of any of John Hughes films. I think certainly where style is almost more important than the substance here. It's a wild fantasy of a movie. Um, It uses his strengths. I think arguably is the strongest one using a lot of his tropes where he fully goes into the fantasies in a way that like are the text of the movie and not just the imaginations of the people happening. Um, Planes, Train, and Automobile, on the other hand, I feel like might be his most grounded film in some ways, uh, in terms of the good stuff, but as well as I like, I think I really, really like Some Kind of Wonderful quite a bit. I, I mean, a big Leah Thompson fan. I just watched another movie with her recently. i like, she was just so great. We didn't appreciate how good we had it with young Leah Thompson. She was wonderful. And uh, this is it takes everything that was should have worked in pretty and pink but didn't because of i thought just poor casting or poor reads on the characters and also by doing the gender flip helps a lot and it just tells that story again just does it in a much
1: better way well the character played by um mary stuart masterson i can't remember the character's name i remember uh amanda jones because they have the song that's in the film but um <laughs> yeah. but uh her character's more likable than ducky like oh much it's, more it's, yeah so both of the romantic uh leads in it you know or there's three essentially romantic leads you know there's not there's not a triangle there's not a pairing that doesn't make some kind of sense in your mind versus pretty and pink where it's like why would she ever entertain the thought of being with ducky like why would that ever even remotely happen and honestly
0: you don't you can't even figure out why she hangs out with ducky and yeah. pretty and pink <laughs> he's so caustic and toxic whereas here mary Stuart masterson is playing a kind of a person that seems really real and you totally understand her friendship with eric stoltz and are like yeah i've had friendships like that like you it all comes all too real even that moment where they're like where he's like bing oh why didn't i see what was right in front of me all this time sells you know I, I genuinely like this, whereas, like I said, I can't get past how terrible Ducky is in Pretty and Pink. I just can't.
1: <laughs> this set is interesting in that it is like a, um, when I opened it up, it was interesting to see <laughs> that it is like, it is made up of discs that exist before. So, like, you get all these mismatched discs that, like, the art is like, oh, I remember when Paramount was releasing discs that had this gray label, you know what I mean? Versus, like, oh, and this one's full color, and oh, this one is just silver with the ink on top. It's like, it looks like someone, like, reached into, like, a bin of DVDs and just put them in this box in regards to, like, there's no uniformity to the set in regards to, oh, it's got really nice art, and there's, like, poster art on the discs, and everything is, like, this is a set that's made to basically go we 've sold a gazillion copies of these movies we you know who every time we release them we're going we know we 're going to sell a baseline amount of X every single time <laughs> we re- repackage these, so here they are repackaged again it 's a very affordable group um that if you don't <laughs> own these you know if you don 't yeah. own these though i 'm sort of like at this point if you don 't own them, I have to assume one you 're just really, really young. Or yeah. two, you hate them outright, to begin with. <laughs>
0: <laughs> or at least on some of them. I mean, I, like I said, neither one of us had even seen She's Having a Baby yeah, before. True. So, I mean, I don't hate She's Having a Baby. I think, it's, I think it's tolerably Oof. entertaining. I, I actually would watch that again before I'd watch Pretty in Pink, mm-hmm. I'll tell you that. Uh, I really just, outside of the soundtrack, I just do not care for that movie. But just for the th- the movies in here that are really good, which are quite a few that this is worth picking up for the price. Um, apparently, this is the first time on Blu-ray for Some Kind of Wonderful and She's Having a Baby, but they're really just taking the features from, I guess, the old DVD releases of both of these and putting them on here. So there's no, there's nothing, I don't think, new here, really, on either one of those, and all the others are just... Re- grabbing the Blu-rays out of previously existing editions of the films and shoving them in here so there's not a lot new it's just about hey do you not have these already well here's an affordable way to get them and maybe get set with like a clunker so anyway that is digital noise John
1: what is my pick of the week what is the you know this is tough the- because this is, this is I hope the only time this ever happens where one of my all time favorite movies is not my pick of the week because I'm not going to say the John Hughes collection Even though Planes Trains is in there. I'm going to say Breaking Surface because uh, people, people will probably like it. See this movie. It's very tense. It's a good time.
0: Yeah, I, I know I would if I was to pick the thing I'm going to watch the, re-watch the most. It's Harley Quinn 1 and 2. But A, there's no extra features, and B, it's widely available on streaming, whereas Breaking Surface is and it may not have come to your attention at all other than us pimping it and going, this is a really good movie and you should check it out. <laughs> I, I don't even know if this is streaming or will be streaming anywhere, but it is available on Blu-ray and is well worth picking oh, up. I, I, I thought you'd say movie. Runaway Train. I really like Runaway Train, but this isn't the first home release of it either, and it doesn't add a lot of new bonus features to it, nor did I think it was a spectacular transfer. I mean, it's fine, but it doesn't look a hell of a lot better than the previous transfer. So, you know. Okay, And I really, I can't even tell you how much I love the Harley Quinn series, man. I'm actually, when you finish with it, I'm really looking forward to going back and restarting it again and just watching it all. So good. Anyway, that's it for Digital Noise for this week. Thank you to my co-host, John Golson. John, do you have anything out there you need to promote going on right now?
1: Not at the moment. Uh, there, There will be soon, but not at the moment.
0: Cool. We'll look forward to hearing about that. You can always pick up some of his work previously in the Halloween man trades that are out there where you've done some of the art for those.
1: Yeah. Most recently, Halloween man anniversary special, which came out in December ish, October, December, somewhere between there somewhere in time that weird nightmare before Christmas time. Cause it's a Halloween <laughs> and Christmas story at the same time. But um, yeah, that's out there on comiXology and where fine comics are sold.
0: Cool. And uh, we will see you guys soon with more digital noise.